Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of Tell Us a Good Story. Today, we have a very inspiring story for you from our conversation with Carol Matika. Just a few years ago, Carol was diagnosed with inoperable stage four colorectal cancer and was given six months to live at best. Then some crazy stuff happened, including a total stranger donating his liver to her. Can't wait for you to hear this one. I'm Kevin. And I'm Stephanie. And during our marriage, we have dealt with an electrocution, a brain tumor, brain surgery. Then doctors telling us that children were not in our future, followed by miscarriage, and then Kevin's cancer diagnosis. However, today, we live a life completely healed and restored with three healthy children who doctors said were not possible. And we're here to tell stories that inspire, give hope, and brighten your day. Welcome to Tell Us a Good Story. This episode is being presented to you by Luby Companies, a custom home builder here in central Ohio. Let them be your builder for life. They're freaking awesome. Steph, this next story is going to be amazing. I'm praying this is able to inspire listeners who really need to hear the story. I don't know how it won't. So friends, our next guest is a stage four colon cancer survivor. She is the co-founder and CEO of the nonprofit organization, Bloom, originally from Van Wert, Ohio, and a proud graduate of the Ohio State University. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen. And Van Wert High School. And Van Wert High School. (laughs) Please welcome to tell us a good story, Miss Carol Matika. Welcome, Miss Carol. And her son's joining us. And her favorite son, Nick, apparently. (laughs) There we go. We took care of that. (laughs) Self-appointed favorite son, Nick. Yeah, I will be forwarding this to all of my brothers. (laughs) Thanks so much for having us. We hope to just inspire through our story. Well, we are thrilled you said yes, both you and Nick. So as we had mentioned, one of our listeners had reached out to us and sent us a screenshot of you, Carol. So I looked you up, researched you, and was like, okay, yes. Thankfully, you said yes. We are thrilled to talk to you. But Carol, if you don't mind, I want to start back like right after your birthday, age 40, 41. Mm-hmm. You have four children. You are four hiking. Boys. Four Let's boys. Four boys. Let's specify that yeah. one you're, right there. You're living in Van Wert at the time. And what happens? Can you take us from there? Well, let me premise this by telling you that I this whole time, I hear the words my story a lot. This whole thing that we've been going through, that it's not my story, actually. It's a greater story that's being continued to be written. And I'm just honored to play a little bit of a role in it. And it's just so special to be able to share that blessing with everybody else and see what the Lord does. We focus on short-term things and we get to see, you know, this big miracle happening. It all started though, when I was 41, just um, had my birthday turned 42 And Nick and his brothers and I went on a hike. We'd been hiking the Buckeye Trail, which maybe you're familiar with. And we were doing a pretty long hike, 17 miler. And the next day I had some pretty bad shoulder pain and just couldn't shake it. And finally, I told Nick, actually, Nick is the one that took me to the ER that day. I told him, I think I I need to go, you know, see a a doctor. And, And ultimately that led to... My blood work just was funky and they said, we need to do more testing. And they ended up finding that day that I had colorectal cancer. Mm. Did you have something to say, Nick? Well, yeah, I was just sitting there with her while she was feeling bad. And she was like, I think you need to take me to the ER. And I actually had a production for uh, a high school play I was in. So I had to drop her off at the (laughs) ER. Like I was dropping her off at school and then leave. (laughs) 
And then someone else said, yeah. well, we had the main little cousin too. So we yeah. had to have his dad get him and then my dad yeah. had to come over. But So like any mom, you know, is that doesn't want to stress anybody out, just says, drop me off yes. at the ER. I'll get looked at and then yes. go do your production and I I'll be fine. I girl too. I couldn't miss. Yeah. Right. One, one scene would have been ruined. <laughs> I said, I'll get a ride home or I'll walk home. No big deal. And that really turned into what is now this great story of hope and miracles and all that. (laughs) So you were in the hospital, you're Mm -hmm. in the ER, you're thinking it's just something with your shoulder, and they come back to you telling you that they found a mass in your colon. How big was the mass? So they did um, an ultrasound first of my liver and I had multiple lesions. The biggest one was seven millimeters, but I had them covering each lobe of my liver. And so then we did a CT scan and we found that there was actually a larger lesion in my colon. And that's where the tumors they thought were coming from. Of course, they weren't oncologists. So they just had to refer me saying this might be cancer. And when they said the word oncologist, you know, here I am 42 years old. I had no idea. I was like, what's an oncologist? And so I was thrust into this, you know, place where I needed to learn and be educated so quickly because I had no idea what any of that meant. So can you explain for us, because I had this moment as well, and I was by myself, actually, of when a doctor tells you that you have cancer. What is that like? I'll be honest. I'm a faithful person, but fear right away. You just are thrown this curveball and you don't have time to process everything. So the first moment that they told me that I was like in shock, you you literally are, you don't have words. You don't even know really like how to process it at all. It's like, maybe this isn't real. You know, maybe I'm in the twilight zone, Yes. Um, but I will tell you my kids, definitely the the first moments is thinking, what about my boys? Because we all know what that C word means until we until we finally get to like resolve it later and figure out what it means. You could be stage zero and completely curable or it could be stage four. And I didn't know those things. So. Okay. You already have my wife crying. Over yeah. Here, I mean, it, just, it brings back so many memories of just everything you said. Like you hear those words, cancer, Matt, yes. like you hear all that and it just a flood just starts infiltrating my mind of things that you and I've gone through. So with me, I was told over the phone at work. And one, I didn't know they could do that. But like you said, it was a gut punch. I even asked them multiple times, are you sure you have the right person? Because I was 36, 37 at the time. And I was like, there's no way you've got the right person here. And so I just sent an email to my boss that, hey, I've got to get out of here. I can't even think right now. And I waited till the evening till we put the kids to bed before I had a talk with Steph of the conversation I had over the phone. So with you, how did you handle that once you got home, once somebody picked you up from, yeah. from the hospital? <laughs> I'm right? like home. Yes. <laughs> how did you handle that with your family with having four boys and yeah. a husband? How did you tell them? Um, yeah. I mean, my ex-husband was with me at the time. So, you know, he was there. He heard my other son, Joseph, had arrived at the ER in the meantime, so he already had heard that news, those those words, and he was already, you know, distraught. And then I, the first person I called was my mom. You know, I, I called my mom and I said, mom, I don't know what's going on, but I need you to come pray. I, I don't know. You know, I don't know what, what we're facing or I don't know any of these things. And, and fear of the unknown was really hard for me. 
Um, and then when we got home, we at that point, we talked to the boys and we said, this is what's going on. And we don't know a lot. So don't get on the computer and don't, which they all did, of course, because they were all teenagers and in college. And um, we said, you know, at that point, we will be as honest with you as we can. As we learn things, we will tell you. Well, I was um, only, I, besides Drew, I was the only one living with you at the time. Yeah. Like yeah. Joe and John were both. They were in college. In yeah. So yeah, we just really we we just said we were going to be honest and and, and we figure it all out together. So that's kind of what we did. So Nick, what was it like for you? I guess you said you're the only one living with your mom at at the time. How did you handle that with your brothers then? Yeah, um, with I guess yeah, we being... had an exchange student too. We had a, we had a Swedish exchange student at the time as well. Oh, okay, yeah, so you're was... dealing with that. Poor kid. I mean, <laughs> yeah, definitely a situation. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right. So was, you you were probably the point of contact then, probably for your brothers with you being at home. So how how did you handle that, Nick? With your um, mom? I don't know. To me, it wasn't that big of an imposition. It just was kind of what was going on. And I tried my best as a as a parent, as a mom, even though they were adults, to really keep the daily stuff going. You know, for me, we we're trying our best to maintain normal throughout this crazy thing that we'd just been thrust into, knowing that our our faith would carry us through regardless. So you go and you meet with the oncologist. And what did they tell you? So I kind of did the opposite way because I had the surgeon first and then the oncologist came later. But this the surgeon at Cleveland, who ultimately we ended up going with, Dr. Tracy Hall, put us in touch with a really great oncologist. But traditionally, you would go see an oncologist and they would give you those words. But you find that these stories are, are so common that people end up in the ER and then the, and the oncologist is actually the afterthought. You already find out you have cancer from whether the tumor is being removed or your, your hospital visit. And then they just come in to tell you that, oh, by the way, you have stage four colorectal cancer. So how long then were you at the Cleveland Clinic? So when I was diagnosed, I was diagnosed inoperable. They initially told me because I asked a lot of questions and <laughs> some and questions. rightfully so you should in right. this type of some situations. Questions yes. you don't want to have answered. But my first oncologist at Finley, who we went to see um, in partnership with Cleveland, told me probably six months I had at best because I, my liver was so damaged. I had tumors on both sides. And so she didn't think I would make it out of chemo. She thought that the chemo would probably kill me. And so she pretty much said, I can keep you alive for six to 12 months with chemo. Well, I'm, I'm with chemo. Old. Yeah. With yeah. chemo. Six yeah. To it was, I was, they said I was late stage colorectal cancer. So that was a blow, but I was pretty, I'm pretty bossy. I, I would confess. Wouldn't you say I'm pretty bossy? <laughs> I, I no comment. Bossy. Nick, don't answer that. Don't answer it, Nick. <laughs> that's a trap. So, uh, <laughs> that's, a, that's a trap question, bro. <laughs> no better. No better. <laughs> and so then we went to Cleveland and said, wait a minute. No, this isn't how our life's going to be. We need to pay attention and we need to put some things into action and figure this out. And so I went to Cleveland and said, I don't know if I'm going to make it out of chemo to surgery, but I need to have a plan to do that. And I said, you give me a date. I don't care what date it is. It may not be that date, but I needed that date to just kind of rest my mind and be able to sit in the idea that we had a goal in mind, um, not just you're going to do chemo until you die. And so that helped me get through the 12 rounds of chemo, which were, uh, it was just horrible. And so I, I made it through the 12 rounds of chemo, which nobody thought would happen. Well, I did. And God did, because I told my surgeon, nobody has a, a stamp on my life except for God. So you're not going to tell me, you know, how long it's going to be <laughs> until right. I check out. Only God does that. How long was the chemo? Yeah. How long does 12 rounds take? 
uh, six months. So you have two, two chemo rounds a month. You have every okay. other week. So you go through about six rounds of treatment and then they reassess you, they reevaluate and they look at you again and say, okay, what can we do? In retrospect, that the six month period there, the initial chemo seems like it was no time at all, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it really was a snap. It went really? so fast. Yeah, I was pretty sick and slept most of the time, but I needed to listen to my body and make sure that I understood and my body understood what it needed to do. And that was, it's funny. I had a, I had to talk, I had a lot of talks with God, but I had to talk with God at first. And I said, all right, God, I know you're not supposed to make deals or barter with God, but I was, I was at my end. So I said, I can take care of my body. You know, I can eat healthy um, because I had to really focus on the things that I could do because the other things I had no control over only God and the, and the surgeons did. So I said, I could sleep, I could eat healthy, I could focus on just being okay. And they had to take charge and do all the rest. So I I did make it to be able to have my tumors removed. Through the grace of God, I got those 12 rounds and we got to scan. And my oncologist, Dr. Pelly said, I can't believe this, but a lot of your tumors are gone. I'm like, great. Yay. Um, He had a hundred percent response to the chemo. And so that flipped me from maybe only having six to 12 months to live to, I could maybe have surgery. So it was a three-stage approach. And what they did was they went in and they, they just, I'll just layman's terms it. They disconnected my right lobe. And then they went in and they also removed the, the tumors that I had on my left lobe because they thought that my life could be extended by only having one lobe of the liver. So we did three surgeries and we removed any unessential organ at that point. I do not have any uh, not necessary organs. So God blessed me with non-essentials for that reason. He's like, I'll just put that in in case you don't, we can take it out. You know, so like, <laughs> gallbladder, spleen, appendix, colon, you name it, it's all gone. And then they, in, in January of that year of 2017, they installed the hepatic artery infusion pump, which what that does is it delivers a type of chemo directly to your liver only because they wanted to use that component as a cleanup. So we did that. We cleaned up with the chemo and that's when it kind of started going downhill. Really? Yeah. Yeah. She kind of entered into a state after that where she had like liver failure for months, even with the direct port into her liver that she also to this day loves to get people to touch. <laughs> you want to see my uh, direct port, my biliary port? Conversation starter, right? Yeah, yeah everyone loves touching a biliary port. Um, but yeah, she had this extended period of liver failure and she was like very jaundiced. She was yeah. extremely yellow and like this like long period of liver failure she had. She, she did um, high school youth at the church the entire time, even when she was like really sick and yellow and like had basically no hair. Like she was, she was still about it every week doing her thing. And I really respected that. And, um, yeah, yeah. See, this is, this is why I don't commend you very often. See, um, she just can't, she just can't, she can't take a compliment. You are my favorite kid now. You are. (laughs) Anytime you get a chance to compliment your mom, do it, my friend. So you had three surgeries. Then what happened? Yeah. So after I had the three surgeries, it was really great. I We spent time at the lake. I was able to go on a mission trip while I was turning yellow, but we didn't really know what was going on at that point. So we kind of were living in a little bit of a, a fog and we were enjoying it. And, and did I just did I just hear you say you went on a mission trip while you were going through chemotherapy? I think that's <laughs> what I just heard. 
I did totally. And I dug post holes with kids. Oh my gosh. Well, we went to, so they had the hundred year flood in West Virginia a few years ago. Oh yes. And so they did a thing where she walked across the, the beams on the underside of the new river gorge bridge. But anyways, <laughs> it's okay. I never let cancer get me down because I had a lot of life to live out besides cancer. So it was just one little part of the piece of, of who I am. But yeah, we we went on a mission trip for seven days to, it was like a hundred degrees. We slept in a school on cots and had packed lunches and it was so fabulous. It just, you know, it reaffirmed that God is here and I needed to be here for people to see that it was okay to live with a, a diagnosis like I had and still live fully and still participate in life. And that was really important to me personally. On top of that, my kids in my youth group, because, you know, they were going to go through adversities in life. And I wanted them to think back to that time when one of their leaders and had an adversity and she didn't fold, but she stood up and she stood up strong. And and when she couldn't stand up strong, God helped her. And I wanted to leave that for them. She always said uh, that she didn't want people to think of her as Cancer Carol. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's true. You know, she had a lot more going on than like, and like treatment and being sick. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. No, that makes sense. And then ultimately after I got back from all those really great summer things that we did, I uh, went to Montana, spent the time, some time in Montana. She rode a horse. I she did. tried to get up on a horse and she nearly like passed out and fell off of the horse. And oh, but I made she's it. She's like, I'm going to ride a horse. I made it. I made the trail. I thought I was going to throw up a couple times. But <laughs> oh man. <laughs> <laughs> to say that like more than anything, when she was in this state, when she was, when her health was declining again, more than anything, it was us trying to slow her down. Like she yeah. would get going about some mom, you can't do that. You like, you will hurt right. yourself. You're ill. Like you have to be careful. And I always thought that was a, a funny dynamic. You know, it wasn't us trying to ache her along. It was us like desperately trying <laughs> right. to stop her from hurting herself or something. Right. Yeah. I totally get that because your mom's trying to take advantage of every moment. Right. Whether it's taking pictures or going to Montana or like spending time with the youth group. I don't want this slowing me down. I want to take advantage of every moment here. Yeah. Right. Because absolutely tomorrow's not, not given. Guaranteed. It's not guaranteed. Right. So I, I totally get that. Yes. Yep. So, so keep going to the point where you need your liver transplant. Yeah. So my liver was failing in August from all the treatment that it had to endure. Basically, I think I had 17 surgeries total after the drains, the stents, the cholangiograms, the catheterizations, all the different things we had done. And I had dual drains trying to drain out the belly. And I remember one day I was inpatient. They were getting ready to dismiss me and everything was going good. My mom was getting ready to take me home. She pulled up to the parking lot. There was a, there's a circle out in front of the Cleveland clinic. And she pulled up to the valet to get me in the car and sat back in to the car just to get settled. And we drove about a a block and I pulled the blanket up and I happened to hit the drain and I pulled the blanket back just to, to move it and fix it. And my abdomen was completely full of blood. And at that point I had a liver aneurysm in the Cleveland clinic parking lot. If I would have, if I would have had it anywhere else, I would never have made it and survived because I would have bled out before I got back to Cleveland or to wherever because we had a three hour trip home. So if I would have been on the highway anywhere, I would not have survived. And I was with my mom. I took 10 years off of my mom's life. before All, <laughs> all her cat years are gone. <laughs> she did really well though. She, she leapt into action. So we, we literally 
did the circle back around the valet parking. My mother, who's bless her heart, she's 73 years old. She jumps out of the car, throws her keys at the per- a valet. Oh. I don't even know if it's the valet person. She's just throwing her a keys. random person. Oh, it's the random guy. Yeah. She is in action. <laughs> she, she goes and grabs a wheelchair and the valet guy comes over and he says, I will take her to the ER. And she, my mom, of course, no, I will take her. She is my daughter. <laughs> so Here's my 73 year old mom. We don't know if we just got her car stole or not. <laughs> running, <laughs> running through the Cleveland clinic. I'm covered in blood. Not much of a runner. My we must've looked like a mess. And we ran up directly to the GI floor and, Doctors appeared like vampires, you know, whoop, there they were. And I knew really? I was in trouble at that point when the doctors showed up in a hot minute and they were like, you just left. And we, I was like, I know I'm covered in blood. And they had to go in um, and cauterize my liver because it had aneurysmed. And they said, you know, God is saving you. I don't know. I don't have any other explanation to this than I'm not saving you. God's saving you. And Dr. Quintini sat at my bedside at that moment. And he said, I, I'm out of options. I'm out of things. And he used to say, I've got things back here in my pocket, you know? And he, at that point he said, um, I'm out of things. And he said, I don't, I don't know what else we can do. And that was a moment. I, I remember that. I remember, you know, him sitting there because that was when I really realized, wow, this might not end the way I want it to. And he said, you know, the only thing I can do at this point is try and and do something experimental that we're working on here at Cleveland. And that's liver transplanting for colorectal cancer patients um, that have disease only in their liver. And I decided with God holding my hand that I wasn't going down without a fight. If God needed me up there, he would figure it out. And if I needed to be down here, then he'd figure that out too. And so I needed a liver transplant and that's when everything started happening again. All right, Steph, I've got a question for you. What's your favorite book of all time? Uh, obviously, you met her where? Oh, I thought you were going to say the Bible. Oh, oops. <laughs> oh. What's your second favorite book of all time? You met her where? <laughs> a distant second. Totally distant. It's a pretty good book. Sorry, God. It's still a pretty, pretty good book. But we're so excited. Where can people get our book? Honey? Okay, I know this. Uh, Amazon.com. Yes. Barnes and Noble. Yes. And? And our website, KevinStuff.com. And, and what happens if they buy it off our website? <gasps> what do they get? Uh, an autograph from us. Yes. Who wouldn't want that? So, listeners, if you've already read the book, thank you so much. We've had such good feedback. One thing that helps us, if you can give us a review on Amazon.com, we would greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening. So this is the moment, stuff that is just fascinating to me. So when they say you need a liver transplant, uh-huh. how do you find a donor? I'm assuming <laughs> you don't like pop up on Craigslist, right? <laughs> Facebook or like, how do you do that to find a perfect match for a donor? That's funny you say that because I told Dr. Federico and and Dr. Quentin that I was like, can I put it like Facebook, Facebook Marketplace? Oh, they were like, that isn't a good idea. <laughs> you know, we were really lucky. So there's a lot of different ways you can do it. You can go on a donor list. 
there's donor sharing. The really great thing about the liver is, and people don't know this, is it can be separated. So you can share a liver with somebody else. Um, Kidneys are very easily understood because there's two. The liver actually has two lobes. And so it can be divided. And that's actually what happened to me. In many cases, there's cadaver use. You can go on a list. Basically, what I did was I really used social media and I used my church family and then some local media outlets. I was fortunate enough to have it happen through my church family and what we did there. So dumb question here from a non-medical individual like myself. Why don't you ask your family? Why can't like one of your sons say, hey, mom, here. It was supposed to be Joseph, actually. So you you selected was... him. He was the short end of the straws. <laughs> yeah, Is that how that yeah. works? Yeah. <laughs> You're the short straw. The least, the least favorite in the family, Joseph. Here you go. <laughs> Joe, in my in my humble interpretation, is the candidate for favorite son, and I was very concerned about the status of this organ donation because I thought I thought that was going to be like an un, an unbeatable uh, achievement for Joe. Real feather in the cap. Yeah. And you, that ends a great a great question you bring up. And yes, we ultimately knew that the kids um, would qualify to be a donor because our our blood types would match. However there's a lot of things riding on that when it comes down to family and when it comes down to being a parent. And I didn't feel super comfortable with having that happen because knowing there's so many things that could happen for the fear of my son having a major surgery or, you know, what if it didn't work or, you know, to put that burden on my child is something that as a mom, I just didn't feel like I could do that. And so we knew we had that option that if it was last resort, and we knew we could go to the other routes first. And, and Cleveland Clinic was on board with that too. They felt adamantly that we could go about it a different way. So we put a note in the bulletin at church. My pastor said, listen, everyone knows your plight. Everyone knows about cancer. I don't see why we can't just put a little note in the bulletin that says that you're looking for an organ donor because in order to live, you need a liver. So your pastor puts in the church bulletin yeah. that the youth director is looking for a liver donor. Yeah. And how, how big is this church, by the way? Very small. Mm-hmm. It's oh, like it is. Uh, maybe, what, maybe like three or 400 people on Christmas and Easter. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. I was thinking it was going to be massive. And the craziest thing is we truly didn't know the sexually is <laughs> at all, which is very surprising considering that we were like pretty closely acquainted with like everyone in the church. We didn't know them at all. Well, they really? sat on their side of the the ocean and we sat on our side you know yeah, the pew i've us, sat in my entire yeah childhood. us good lutherans have our specific pew that we sit in you know <laughs> so they were on the other side so we don't go to the other side <laughs> it's so true it that is, is true. such a true <laughs> statement um i could tell you right now where i sat at redeemer lutheran in convoy ohio it's on the right side my kids still go to the same pew. If you're like, <laughs> you're dead to me. My old <laughs> yes, I'm like, uh, who's the new people What's in the pew? They, like, yeah. Does anybody see this but me? Like, this was the Keller I've pew. Why is somebody here? I have a license for this. <laughs> yes. So you knew of them, but yeah. you had not really communicated with them, right? Yeah. Just, just yeah. acquaintances, I guess. Yeah. And the, the great part of the story is Jason knew right away that day in church, he's, you know, looking back, he tells the story so eloquently about how he knew he was supposed to do it. He felt that the Lord pressed that on his heart right then and there. Um, And he doesn't remember anything else about that Sunday, except that that was what he was supposed to do. End of story. Now, let me stop there because him knowing that and him being medically eligible are two completely different things. 
So we had over 60 people that had offered me an organ. And Jason was one of them. And ultimately, Cleveland orders them. You know, they put them in order of who might work out the best, right? And so Jason was number six. Well, people would text us and tell us, hey, I'm being considered and I'm going to Cleveland. And lo and behold, you know, Jason would ask me, where's everything at? And we tell him and he was getting angry because he knew that this was his job. Really? And, he, and I was getting sicker. I was really sick at that point to the point where I couldn't really get out of bed. Like I was an hour, maybe I had during the day I could get around. And then I was just completely exhausted. Jason was actually number six on the list okay. because the other five got so for some reason didn't qualify, which we, you know, looking back, we think that that was two, two amazing works that God was working in their lives because they were identifying problems that they had that they didn't know about. So this is, again, going back to the idea of this, not being about me, this is, there's so many cool pieces of how God's working through this. And that was one of our first signs that it was like, gosh, these five people have been now witnessed to and said, we've got something that we've got to deal with. And that was great. It was okay. Well, finally they got to Jason. And and one day after church, Jason came up to me and he said, so I guess I'm going to give you my liver. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I mean, what was that like the biggest bear hug ever that he crosses the aisle to the other side (laughs) of the church (laughs) and you're like, whoa, 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 what's going on? You're in my personal space here. You're in my space. You're You're getting a little close. You're on the left side. Not back. Yeah. But then he tells you this. What is that like? You want me to be honest. So uh, like, honestly, I, it was shock and awe, just like the cancer diagnosis. And honestly, we had been told no five times. So we didn't know where he was. So I was like, oh, that's, that's great. What, what, cause they're very private about like what's going on at Cleveland. You don't get okay. to know it's a very private, both sides. So I was only getting information that people would text me or call and tell us. So we didn't know what they were doing. And so when he told me, I was kind of like, wow, that, that's great news. And so I guess I wasn't like, ah! that came down the road later. Okay. So then how long from that moment does he actually get to donate his it liver took- to you? That was in September. So I transplanted in April. So from September wow. to April. Wow. Yeah. So contrary to like when the, the initial rounds of chemo seemed to go so quick, this like interregnum was forever. Ever. This um, Because we, you know, because she just kept, you know, getting visibly more and more. Right. Ill. And we're like, yeah, we're, you just, we're just waiting on the, yeah. the thing we know is going to happen that will make her better. But it's awful. let's just, so just to clarify from September to April, there are so many things that one has to go through and they were super, super detailed about matching the liver, matching the host, making sure that our systems could be grafted appropriately if they needed to be. There's a lot of work. Plus there's the psychosocial stuff. You know, you're going through not just me getting a liver, but my family's being affected, his family's being affected. So there's multiple layers of what goes through the process of actually being a candidate versus just signing up to be a candidate. (laughs) Right. So is it true, I'm reading my notes here, that you're the first person in the nation to get a liver transplant after being diagnosed with colorectal cancer? Yes. Under Dr. Asejo and his team at Cleveland Clinic, we're the first people that did it. Now, it it had been done in Norway, Okay. And it had, this study is from Norway. So I'm not the first person that's ever received one, but I'm the first person with the new protocol that had received the, the process. Now I think there are, there are five of us or so, six of us that have an organ after colorectal cancer as well. 
So how does this transplant work? Do you and Jason mm-hmm. go to the Cleveland Clinic same day? You're in the same surgery. How, do, how does that work? So we checked in the night before. So we've been to the clinic several times together, uh, you know, doing multiple testing things and um, doing, doing the plethora of, of screening things. At one time, they, they took 48 vials of blood from me. I said, you're going to have to give me a transfusion to put blood back into me after all this. The lady was getting out the phlebotomist. She's a gem. She was getting out all the tubes. And I said, oh, are you restocking? And she said, no, those are for you, honey. And I was oh, like, no. <laughs> she laid out 48 like in front of you. Yeah. Like, this is what I got to fill up. I oh. thought she was like restocking them. And she's like, no, these are for you. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, can you put me under? Yeah. I oh, mean, they, you go through multiple, multiple screenings and then, you know, immunizations and biopsies and, you know, just a plethora of stuff. And finally, we got to the, the day of transplant. And by that time, we had really gotten to know Stephanie and Jason really well. So and on on a side note, now Stephanie is one of my best friends. She always tells people it took her husband donating his liver to get a best friend. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but truly, that's that's really a blessing at how that came to be. And now Stephanie and I, we, we're like sisters now. So and to be Stephanie, you know, who what wife says, sure, you got right. this. You, the Lord told you to give this organ to this strange woman, and no problem. We will stop our life. We yeah. have two kids. We will stop our life for you know yep. six months, so you can give this organ to this strange person. Sure, no problem. That's yeah, a great idea. Let's do yeah. that. Someone you don't know. Yeah, like you better. God better spoke to you, babe, because yeah, if you're not, strong, we're at yeah. work, <laughs> right? You have to put right. that no. burden on her kids. To, I mean, you don't know if you're going to make it through or not. I mean, there's so many burdens there, and for her to just say sure, I mean, she's a hero. But um, yeah, we went there on April 22nd. We checked in, they got us already. And we were, we went down for surgery at 6 a.m. in the morning. My kids were all there. My mom, my sister, my pastor. Pastor Will was amazing. Though. Was there. Oh. So they were there with us. And they, you know, it's a really a game time decision. So you do all this great work up and you are ready to go. And then you don't really know till the minute they open me up and say, there's no cancer anywhere. Then they start Jason. So they don't no do way. anything with him until they can say for sure that I'm okay to get me all set up and going. They opened me up. They did a couple pathologies while I was open um, to make sure that they weren't cancerous and they weren't. And then they go ahead and start the transplant. It's about a 12 hour uh, transplant for me, for Jason. I think it was about eight hours. Oh my! A so grueling day of waiting a, for for these guys. It's a it's a marathon to to be there, and there were there were really scary moments too. Like there was a time before mom was awake when after Jason came out of surgery, he was in real bad shape for about an hour there. Like we were like just like terrified he was going to like die or something, which is like the probably the absolute worst thing that could happen is to like yeah. successfully right. organ transplant <laughs> and your donor dies who has like a, a family and. and multiple children um that would have been awful yeah because i'd seen like i think it was the risk was like five out of a thousand yeah uh donors do end up yeah not making not it. making it through and i don't know if i would have been able to hold that or bear that so carol you and jason get through surgery you both have complications at what point do you actually see each other for the first time then post-surgery well, I mean, not that I recall it, but he was, he came to the, the ICU with me um, and he, he wanted to see me right away. And so did Stephanie. And so I have pictures with them, but I don't recall getting to talk to him. The, the first time I remember talking to him was actually 
he came, we both had to stay in Cleveland for quite some time after the transplant. So he had came over and we were able to, to see each other and share our scars and, you know, hug then. And I think then it was more emotional because then it was like, wow, that just happened. And yeah. I think before that, you're just kind of going through the emotions and just kind of like, okay. But then it was like, wow, that happened. And now we're on the other side. And I think that's when the flood of emotions really came in that, oh my goodness, God just took us through that. Mm-hmm. Right. What just happened? I remember the very next day after the transplant was over, going up to her room with my dad and just like, she looked like so normal, like her, mm-hmm. her like skin was like so much more normal. And mm-hmm. she was so much less jaundice after one day of having a donor <laughs> organ in her. Like, it's amazing how much like it, it, it changed. Flipped the switch. Day. Yeah. <laughs> like 12 hours. Like we could, we came there in the morning and like, she just looked completely different. It, it was unreal to me. I'll never forget that. <laughs> so with Jason, he gets out of the hospital, even though he had complications, <laughs> he gets out of the hospital the next day. What two, days. It, two days. Two days. Okay. Two days. What is his recovery process like then as a donor? He wouldn't even have known he had a transplant or had an organ taken out. I'm not even kidding. He, he really? was like a Titan. Yeah. He couldn't drink for a while. He was actually more mad about that because he's a Mercer County. He's a, he's a beer guy. He's, he's a, a Mercer he's a County guy. guy. <laughs> so, I've heard of them. <laughs> so you know what I'm talking about. Take a bow. <laughs> um, you know, yeah, he, Jason is so light spirited and a non-attention seeker and just like, this was just his mission through God. So for him, it was like, okay, it's time to get back to work. Now I did what I was supposed to do. I followed God's lead and now it's all good. Well, I'm just thinking of Jason, like you are internally grateful to this man for taking off work, going through this whole thing, the risk with his family. Yeah. For me, like, what do you get him as a gift afterwards besides helping him move? I mean, a 12 pack of beer, a case of beer. Yeah, like, what, what do you right? do now forever? Like, Christmas gift every year? Like, how does that work? Jason says to me all the time, stop saying thank you. Stop being gracious because I know you don't have to tell me. I know. And it, I, I always used to, I struggled with like the words. Like, what are the, what, like you said, what do you say to this guy who helped you with life? And, and to his, credit. He's such a humble man and such a serving um, individual that it's not a big deal for him because it was just what he was supposed to do. And so he always tells me opposite. He's like, listen, you don't have to thank me because I'm just glad I got rid of it. I had been keeping it for so long, all these years. I'm just glad it's out. So stop thanking me. You know, So I'm really fortunate to have that kind of relationship with him that now I'm a part of their family and they, they, I'm their liver. So they call me their liver sister. Um, so <laughs> they were just out here the other week. They, yeah, they just were out the other week. Really, I think that the, the most amazing part of being thankful and having gratitude is showing it, not necessarily saying it, but just like being present in life and participating with each other in things. And I think that's how we embrace forever gratitude. And so that's how we do it. So since you were given initially six to 12 months to mm-hmm. live, you've seen kids graduate high school. Yeah. You've seen kids go off to college. Three. Three kids go off to college. You've moved cross country to Connecticut. You're now the co-founder and CEO of a nonprofit organization, Bloom. Yeah. It's amazing the things that have happened since that initial diagnosis. diagnosis. She since learned that how to initial medical report. <laughs> she learned how to what? She learned how to knit too. That's it. <laughs> just just to add. That's in the top five, right? In the top well, I mean, five. Look what's happened in four years. It's right. been four years since the transplant. Right. 
Right. That's amazing. So Carol, can you tell us more about your nonprofit organization? Bloom? Yeah. So Bloom is really built on access. The bottom line is it's, it's all about having patient access right at the very beginning of diagnosis. And so we started Bloom because we saw a need during COVID. People were being diagnosed in clinics or in hospitals or in ERs that were isolated because of COVID. And then they were also isolated because they were diagnosed with cancer and they didn't have a space to turn to. And gone were the days of having all the resources, the paper resources, because we're all digital now. And so what we've done is we've created Bloom, and it is really a porthole to the greater colorectal cancer community. It gives you all the resources right in one place. And so what we do is bring that access to all those spaces right to the patient at the moment they're diagnosed. So they don't ever have to feel you know, like they're alone or don't have any place to turn. Colorectal cancer is the second leading cause of death in men and women, cancer deaths combined. And so it's on the rise in young people. And so we need to take steps to be able to help provide people resources and access to all the the spaces that exist for their psychosocial needs. So sorry, that was a little long-winded, but (laughs) I'm so passionate about it. (laughs) And rightfully so. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, listeners, for more information about Carol, you can go to their website, mybloom.org. You can also go to her Instagram and Facebook pages at Sweet Caroline and caroline.matika.3. And we will put all of these links and information in our show notes on this podcast and our website. So Carol and Nick, the favorite child, thank you so very much for joining us today and sharing your story. You're so welcome. And as a final note, please make sure that if you're 45 or over, you do get screens. Yes, know it, screen it, beat it. That's what we like to say. Friends, we want to encourage you to please follow us wherever you listen to this, whether it's on the Apple Podcast app, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or one of the other platforms. It's completely free, you guys. This helps us out big time with the folks who track this stuff. If you haven't already, we want to encourage you to please rate or even write us a review on Apple Podcast. We need as many as we possibly can, even if it's just one sentence. Thank you for listening, you guys, and sharing us with your friends. 